We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Dew Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 6 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Friday, February 26, 2021, the last day of February on which you and I are speaking. When we reconvene on Monday, it'll be March. That's a good thing. We got March Madness on the way. We have NFL Free Agency on the way. That's always a nice thing. You go into March, it's like, okay, you made it out of February. Winter is still going on, but you got some good stuff coming up. It's it's a good feeling. It's the kind of thing... That gets you moving. How are we feeling? How are we doing? We're going to end the week strong? It's important to do that. This is like the fourth quarter of the work week. I always look at it that way. Monday's the first quarter. Tuesday, second quarter. Wednesday, halftime. Thursday's the third quarter. Today, Friday, is the fourth quarter. So we'll uh, do our best to end week one of the Al Galdi podcast in strong fashion. Lots to talk about today. The latest in as the quarterbacks turn For the Washington football team, we have Cam Newton news to discuss. We have the latest on Deshaun Watson and Russell Wilson to get into in terms of what that latest means for our team. Lots to unpack. We're going to unpack that coming up momentarily. Big wins on Thursday night for both the Capitals and the Wizards. How about the freaking Wizards? Three and one trip out west. A really nice win at Denver. There was definitely some luck involved. What the Nuggets were thinking In that final offensive possession, I have no idea. But you know what? If you're the Wizards, you don't have to apologize for anything. Another victory late night last night. And did you see what Bryce Harper said on Thursday? Old Brycey taking what seemed to be, and you never know for sure, right? But what seemed to be a subtle shot at the Washington Nationals. We'll have some fun with that a little bit later on in the pod. Got lots of positive feedback to what I said on Thursday's podcast, the episode five pod on my departure from the team 980. So I'm glad you guys took to that well. I tried my best in that segment. My goal honestly was I didn't want to come off like a whiny biatch. Okay. That that, that was like when I went into it, I said, okay, look, you don't want to be a complainer because there's there's nothing worse than a complainer, especially in sports media. And that always bothers me when I hear people in our business talk about, oh, I have to work so hard and, you know, it's so difficult what I do. Nobody wants to hear that, okay? Nobody is interested in hearing that, even though, yeah, like, there is a lot of work that goes into what we do, and there are trials and tribulations, like there are for 
anyone else in any other line of work. But it's like nobody wants to hear about that. So I, I made it a point. I said, just don't be a whiny biatch about things. So I, I tried not to do that. I hopefully didn't do that. But it sounds like you guys uh, heard what I was saying, heard what I was trying to get across. You know, I, I, I was told many years ago, and I feel like this is a good mantra to take with you through life. The truth is the ultimate defense, you know. So if you just speak your truth, no one really can come at you. Now, you know, you should do it. You shouldn't do it in like an overly mean way. You shouldn't do it to like try to ruin people or anything like that. And I don't think I did that at all. But, you know, if you just speak, hey, this is what happened. How can anyone be ticked off at you? And I'll tell you this. uh, I got some very interesting text messages yesterday off that segment. Um, so it, uh, I, I think it accomplished what I wanted to accomplish. So thank you guys for the positive feedback on that. Keep the feedback coming, whatever you want to say, however you want to say it, at Al Galdi on Twitter. And you can email me. I continue to get so many great emails from you guys. The Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. In fact, I got this email from the UK. Karim. I hope I'm uh, saying that right. K-E-R-I-M. How about this? I got a kick out of this email. Karim writes, I was listening to you talk about the Alex Smith dissing the WFT hierarchy story and following from a suggestion made by one of your listeners that you use a LeBron James sting, i.e. the Bron Bron soundbite. I wanted to request the return of your cha-cha-cha sting whenever you're covering this type of controversial story. And Karim goes on to, in the email, provide me with multiple links to the cha-cha-cha song and cha-cha-cha soundbite. I love this. I love this. Not only calling for yet another classic bite, but providing links through which I can retrieve the bite if need be. Don't worry, Karim. Don't worry. I still have in my possession the weapon that is the cha-cha-cha. Yes, there it is. The cha-cha-cha. Those of you who are new to this podcast, new to the show, new to what I do, the cha-cha-cha, very simply, was what I called the entire Kirk Cousins contract situation back a few years ago. Because it became like a dance. And one day, Kirk would say one thing, and then another day, Bruce Allen would say another thing, and then the day after that, there would be a report about a third thing. And it just felt like every day, there was something new. There was a back and forth. There was a dance, there was a give and a take, and a give and a take, and a one and a two, and a cha-cha-cha. Yes, and that's what it was. And it went on for years, right? The cha-cha-cha started really, truly in 2015, and wasn't ended for good until 2018, if you think about that, right? Because it wasn't until 2018 that Kirk left the team via free agency. But, you know, peak cha-cha-cha was really 2016, 2017, the back-to-back franchise tags, all of the back and forth, all of the reports. I cannot tell you every day how much mileage I ended up getting out of the cha-cha-cha. Exactly. Thank you very much. So I have never brought back the cha-cha-cha because I kind of felt like, okay, that was a Kirk thing. You know, I did that for a while. It's like, I don't want to just beat the heck out of something and take something and, you know, it's like you take, you, you have something that works and then, you know, you, you play the note for too long. You tell the joke too many times, that kind of a thing. So I've never gone back to the cha-cha-cha. I, I don't think I will, you know, especially with the Alex thing, because the Alex thing, I don't know that there's going to be much of a cha-cha-cha. He's not long for being with this team. I, I just, I feel like in the next month, maybe even sooner than that, he's going to be cut. I guess he could still retire, although it doesn't sound like he's going to retire, but I'm not sure how much of a prolonged saga this is going to end up being. I'm not sure how much of a true cha-cha-cha this is going to be. So I'd say for now, I'll hold off on the cha-cha-cha, but I appreciate you referencing that because I always get a kick out of hearing that, and we had a lot of fun, and we spent a lot of days, you and me, talking about the original and only cha-cha-cha. Thank you very much. Well, speaking of quarterback situations, you might say we have one right now with the Washington football team. Who is it going to be in terms of man number three? Hey, that rhymes. Uh, In addition to Taylor Heineke and Kyle Allen. And let's get into the very latest right now. Well, one of the beauties of the NFL is that the news never stops. And while the actual season is only essentially five months, right, September through January, The other seven months, it's not like those months are barren in terms of news. Every day, there is stuff, and there was a whole lot of stuff regarding quarterbacks 
on Thursday. And a lot of that stuff is pertinent to our team, the Washington football team. So let's start with this. Cam Newton, a guy who, of course, Ron Rivera knows very well. Uh, Washington football team insider J.P. Finley of NBC Sports Washington on Thursday reporting that a source close to the Washington football team has told him that there's no reason to believe that Washington's stance on Cam has changed off having made no effort to sign him the previous offseason. This isn't by any means like massive news or anything like that, but I did want to start with this because the Cam thing, it keeps kind of popping up and people keep mentioning, well, what about Cam? for the Washington football team? What about bringing Cam to D.C.? What about reuniting Cam with Ron Rivera and Scott Turner? And I think it's very simple with Cam, okay? Number one, Ron Rivera had zero interest in Cam last offseason. That's as telling as anything. You know, Ron Rivera got asked, are you going to be signing Cam? Are you interested in Cam on a Charlotte radio station? And Ron was like, no, no, we're not. Ron, remember, traded a fifth-round pick for Cam's backup in Kyle Allen. So that, I thought, was a pretty stiff indictment of where Ron felt Cam was at in his career. And I don't think it's that Ron doesn't like Cam. I think Ron actually likes Cam a lot, but I think Ron sees Cam as a guy whose body is banged up, who's not nearly the player that he was at his 2015 peak. And Cam's performance in 2020 backed a lot of that up. Now, he had some good games early in the season, that is true. He did deal with COVID-19, and he never quite seemed the same after that. So I guess you could say, well, maybe the virus did him dirty, and he just never really got back to being his healthy self. But that's the thing with Cam. He has dealt with some significant injury over the last few years. There have been concerns about his shoulder. He's dealt with the foot. And here's the bottom line. Cam in 2020 with the New England Patriots over 15 games was number 30 out of 33 qualified quarterbacks in ESPN's total QBR at 47. He was 30th out of 33. The only qualified quarterbacks who had worse total QBRs than Cam did in 2020 were Nick Mullins, Nick Foles, and Sam Darnold. That is not the company you want to be in when it comes to your quarterback statistics. You are in the vicinity of Nick Mullins, Nick Foles, and Sam Darnold. And that's where Cam was at. He had a bunch of games in which he threw for less than 100 yards. The Patriots ended up having a very disappointing season. Now, it's not all Cam's fault, okay? The Patriots lacked weapons. Bill Belichick very clearly was humbled last year in terms of how well Tom Brady did with Tampa Bay versus what the Patriots ended up doing in going seven and nine. But, you know, to sit here and just excuse Cam's performance as, well, it's not his fault. Like, no, you can't do that. The guy had eight touchdown passes versus 10 interceptions for the season. Eight touchdown passes over 15 games. He was the quarterback for an offense that wasn't very good. And I I think the same way about Cam as I think about a lot of these other veteran quarterbacks who have come up in recent weeks regarding, well, maybe he's a fit for Washington. And when I say veteran quarterbacks, I'm talking about ultra-veteran quarterbacks, like guys who have really been around for like at least a decade or so. So I'm talking about, you know, an Andy Dalton or a Ryan Fitzpatrick, people like that. I'm not interested in these declining quarterbacks, okay? I'm open to the Sam Darnolds and the Marcus Mariotas. I'm not particularly bullish on them, but I'm willing to listen on them because they are still at least relatively young. And you could say, well, they're relatively untapped. Like, I mean, Mariota's been in the league for a while now, but he hasn't been a starter in a few years. And you could say, well, you know, maybe there's a Ryan Tannehill-like turnaround you can engineer with him. Darnold, obviously, is still quite young. Cam was the first overall pick in 2011, okay? He's got a lot of mileage on that body. His greatest success is now six years ago in 2015. And he's not someone who's getting better. He's only staying the same or getting worse. And I'd say the same thing about Fitzpatrick and the same thing about Dalton. So I was encouraged and pleased with this JP report on Thursday that nothing's really changed when it comes to Washington and Cam, even though I feel like people are going to continue to bring up Cam uh, in regards to Washington trying to find that third quarterback for the mix for this upcoming season. Now, I think the more significant items regarding quarterbacks this offseason pertinent to the Washington football team had to do with two other guys on Thursday. And I'm talking about Deshaun Watson and Russell Wilson. So let's start with the latest in the Deshaun Watson situation. ESPN NFL insider Dan Graziano on Thursday reporting 
that Watson had met or I guess at the very least spoken with the Texans new head coach David Culley the previous Friday so February 19th and had told Culley that he Watson still has no intention of playing for the Texans again Deshaun Watson at least in terms of the stance he is presenting ain't budging he ain't moving and how about this neither it seems at least right now are the Texans so much so that Tom Pelissero, NFL insider for NFL Network and NFL.com, he on Thursday reported that with the Texans unwilling to trade Watson, this is great, some teams have been leaving voicemails for the Texans with trade offers. How outstanding is that, that GMs are calling up the Texans and instead of speaking to a live person with the Texans, you know, instead of speaking with, say, the new general manager, Nick Casario, the GMs are just leaving voicemails. Uh, hey, Nick. How you doing? Yeah. Okay. How about four ones and, uh, two twos? Okay. Bye. Hey, Nick. How you doing? Okay. Uh, how about three ones and two twos? Okay. Bye. Like, first of all, who leaves voicemails anymore? Do you leave voicemails anymore? I, I, I like, I mean, I never leave voicemails. Maybe I should. Maybe that's a, a bad thing about me, but no, I just, if I call someone and the person doesn't pick up, I just hang up. You know, and if you're like desperate for the person to get back to you for some reason, you text them. But uh, voicemails, I feel like they're so passe. Like nobody leaves voicemails anymore. And yet and people are doing that with the Texans. But the big thing here would be clearly Deshaun Watson is still disgruntled. He's not been soothed or placated by the hiring of this guy, David Culley. And the Texans, at least right now, are saying we're not moving him. I think the Texans are nuts to trade him. You know, we'll see who wins the game of chicken. We'll see who wears the staring, wins the staring contest and something like this. Understand, though, it's still so far-fetched that Deshaun Watson gets traded to Washington. A, because, of course, the Texans would have to want to trade Watson. But B, and this is the most pertinent thing of all, Watson has got to want to come to Washington. And there's never been any reporting that Washington is on Watson's list of desired teams. The, The real best intel we have on this came from this guy, Armando Solguero, a columnist for the Miami Herald, He on January 23rd reported that Watson's top two preferences are the Jets and then the Dolphins. That's what he wants, okay? Um, Good luck going to the Jets. I mean, I know a lot of people like their new head coach, Robert Sala, but okay, fine. But you're not hearing Washington come up when it comes to Deshaun Watson. But he wants out, man, and he ain't budging, and the Texans aren't listening. But you can leave him a voicemail. At the very least, you can do that. So that's where we stand with Watson. The real juicy item, though, on Thursday had to do with Russell Wilson. How about what is going on here between Russell Wilson and the Seattle Seahawks? First of all, there was a big article on The Athletic about the Wilson Seahawks situation and what exactly has transpired. Then Adam Schefter of ESPN reported on Thursday, actually tweeted that per Russell Wilson's agent, Wilson has not demanded a trade and has told the Seahawks that he wants to play for them But he also has told the Seahawks that if a trade is considered, the only teams that he would consider going to would be Dallas, New Orleans, Chicago, and Las Vegas. So try to parse that if you would. I don't want to be traded, and I will play for you. But if you're going to trade me, here are four teams I would be willing to go to. Russell Wilson, like Deshaun Watson, has a no trade clause in his contract. You tell me, is that not passive aggressive if you say, well, look, technically I'm not demanding a trade and I will play for you, but if you're going to trade me, here are the four teams that I'll consider going to. That to me is, I'm not going to demand a trade because I don't want it reported that I've demanded a trade, but I'm going to demand a trade by listing to you four teams that I would be willing to go to. Like, why would you say that? If you really, truly don't want to be traded, if you really, truly want to stay in Seattle, you're not throwing out names of other teams. It's like, I don't want to divorce you, but if I do divorce you, here are the four women I'd like to sleep with next. Like, who would say, if you say that, it's pretty obvious what you're trying to communicate when you say that. It would be lovely, by the way, for once, if our team would be on the list uh, of these desirable new teams for these quarterbacks, right? Watson wants the Jets or Dolphins. Wilson wants the Cowboys, Saints, Bears, or Raiders. Uh, I, I guess, you know, we'll know that the Washington football team is really in a good place when Washington starts being mentioned uh, on these lists. Now, look, Wilson, like Watson, being traded, still far-fetched. 
Russell Wilson in April 2019 signed a four-year, $140 million contract extension that makes trading him quite difficult. The contract includes a no-trade clause, like we just said. And know this, Wilson being traded before June 1st triggers $39 million in dead money charges against the Seahawks 2021 salary cap. Now, the Hawks could wait until after June 1st to trade Russell Wilson. That is true. But it is after June 1st that so much of the offseason movement is complete. Obviously, the draft is uh, long done come June 1st. And NFL free agency is essentially done come June 1st. So how many teams are going to be willing to wait around to say, hmm, what happens with this Russell Wilson situation? Well, we're not going to make our big move at quarterback this offseason because we're going to try to trade for Russell after June 1st. I mean, so many things can change between now and June 1st. So that, that those are like the two big impediments to Wilson being traded. I mean, actually, there's three, right? A, he's really good. B, he's got the no trade clause. And C, $39 million in dead money charges against the Hawks cap if he's traded before June 1st. There's clearly something wrong here between Wilson and the Seahawks. Like, I, you know, people can frame this however they want. And some people say, well, you know, it's really not that bad. And then you have other people now, I think, really getting on board with the idea of, no, it's it's pretty rough here. It's been an odd scenario, though. It all got going on February 9th, where when Russell Wilson on both the Dan Patrick show and at a Zoom press conference said that he was frustrated by how often he has been hit and sacked. And he did admit that he himself needs to get better, but he expressed a desire to not be hit and sacked so often, okay, and he expressed a desire to be more involved in the Seahawks personnel decisions. Now, Russell Wilson, as a lot of you listening know, has been sacked and hit a ton in his career. Nine seasons, 2012 through 2020, he's been sacked 394 times. That's the most sacks taken for a quarterback over his first nine regular seasons since the 1970 AFL-NFL merger. Now, a lot of these mobile quarterbacks do get sacked quite a bit. They're often trying to extend plays. You know, they're running around back there and not always does the running around result in a great off-schedule completion or in a great scramble. Like sometimes the running around does result in a sack. So it's not necessarily that the Seahawks have done a crap job building up their offensive line and Wilson's been the victim of that, but it also is, this is just kind of the nature of Russell Wilson's game. And like I said, he did say that he himself does need to be better. So, okay, fine. That's when all this really got going February 9th. Two days later, February 11th, Tom Pelissero reports, that teams have been reaching out to the Seahawks about trading for Wilson, but that those teams have been given no indication that the Seahawks are inclined to trade for Wilson. Okay. Day after that, February 12th, Jason Lockenfora, NFL insider for CBS Sports. He went on B. Mitch and Finley on 106.7 The Fan and said regarding our team, the Washington football team, that it was monitoring the Russell Wilson situation. Quote, they're certainly going to be evaluating any quarterback who's available. Like this Russell Wilson chatter is not lost on them, I can assure you that. And it's more than chatter. There's a thing brewing here. Not as this, not at Deshaun Watson levels yet. It may be amendable. There may be some way to keep that thing together, but people are monitoring it. And I can tell you Washington is doing that. And then comes what was out there yesterday, the athletic article chronicling what's gone down between Wilson and the Seahawks and why some of this tension exists. And then Adam Schefter reporting what, again, I think is a very passive aggressive way of saying trade me, which is, well, I'm not going to demand a trade, but here are four teams I'd be willing to go to, you know? So here we are. From the perspective of our team, because that's what I care about. I'm not really interested in what happens with Seattle. I'm interested in what happens with our team. From the perspective of our team, it's not so much about, well, what about Washington trading for Russell Wilson? That's not going to happen. What it is about, though, is these four teams on Wilson's list, okay? Because the two teams that really, truly stand out are the Cowboys and the Raiders. And if it turns out that Russell Wilson does end up being traded, and, it, you know, that still seems unlikely, but, you know, you can't just assume, like, no, it's not going to happen. There's definitely a problem here between himself and Seattle. You think about the Cowboys, right? So they've got this Dak Prescott scenario where are they going to franchise tag him again? Are they going to work out the long-term contract? It's very clear with the Cowboys. Jerry Jones may like Dak. He does not love Dak. The, the parallels between the Dak Cowboys situation and the Kirk Cousins Washington situation really are incredible when you think about it. Each guy was a fourth round pick. 
each guy wasn't supposed to be the team starting quarterback and yet ended up being the team starting quarterback. Each guy is good, maybe not elite good. I mean, certainly not elite good, but good, you know, upper half of the NFL. And in Dak's case, I think, you know, top 10 in the NFL. Each guy is remarkably durable, although I know Dak's coming off the severe injury of last season. And each guy really has never truly been shown the love from his team that you would think his play, performance, reliability would warrant. With Dak, I do think he's going to be resigned. I do think he's going to get the long-term deal. However, when something like this comes out, Russell Wilson winking his eyes at you saying, well, I'd be willing to go to Dallas. I'd be willing to play for you, Jerry. You do have to wonder, would Dallas be open to some kind of a tag and trade scenario with Dak Prescott and then make a, a deal for Russell Wilson? Would Dallas be up for some kind of swap where Prescott is out and Wilson is in? And is there any way that our team could end up getting its hands on Dak Prescott? Again, far-fetched. I'll grant you that. But I'll tell you this. I'd take Dak Prescott here in a heartbeat. And don't forget what emerged earlier this month. Dak following the Washington football team on Instagram. And I know that may sound like such a silly, stupid thing. Like, who cares? He followed the Washington football team on Instagram. You know how things go these days. Social media behavior matters. And when players follow and unfollow teams, and when a player on a team, say, unfollows his current team, that's almost always a sign that that player is disgruntled. And conversely, if a player follows a team, you could certainly say, I'll say this, I would take Dak here in a heartbeat. And remember what emerged earlier this month, that Dak had followed the Washington football team on Instagram. And I know that sounds so stupid and so silly. And it's like, who cares that he followed the Washington football team on Instagram? If you know sports right now, you know that social media behavior matters. And so often, if a player, say, unfollows his current team on social media, that's a sign that the player's disgruntled. So conversely, would it not make sense if a guy followed a team on Instagram that maybe he's got some interest in that team? Now, the Dak Prescott Instagram account did end up unfollowing the Washington football team on IG. So, you know, maybe it was a mistake. Maybe he accidentally clicked something. He didn't mean to click, and he somehow ended up following Washington. I don't know. That's hard to ignore that, right? Dak following Washington on Instagram earlier this month. But look, whatever the case is, whether he did that on purpose or not, whether it had meaning or not, 100%, I'd welcome Dak to Washington with open arms. Dak Prescott in 2019 was a stud. Fourth in the NFL in total QBR. Fifth in the NFL in yards per pass attempt. Second in the NFL in passing yards. I know he's coming off the gruesome injury. No doubt. Compound fracture and dislocation of the right ankle. But it seems to be something he can come back from. I mean, it's not good that he suffered that. And it was a nasty looking injury to be sure. But this isn't like the Alex Smith injury where you have real concerns about can this guy play well again moving forward. And remember this too with Dak. Prior to that injury, he had never missed a game in his four plus NFL seasons. He has been incredibly durable. He really blossomed as a passer in 2019. He has an excellent reputation as a teammate and as a guy. People love Dak Prescott. He has handled the spotlight and the pressure of being the Dallas Cowboys quarterback so well. I know it's pie in the sky likely, but you do have to wonder about that. If Russell Wilson is willing to go to Dallas and the Cowboys don't truly love Dak Prescott, might our team, the Washington football team, be able to benefit from this and figure out a way to get Dak to D.C. Now, the other team that stands out in terms of the Russell Wilson, I don't want to be traded, but if you want to trade me, here's where I'd like to go list. The Raiders. You know the Raiders would make that swap, Derek Carr out, Russell Wilson in. I think John Gruden likes Derek Carr. Derek Carr has had a very nice last two seasons, but we know with John Gruden, he loves to change quarterbacks. And I think like Dak with Dallas, I think there is a lack of love from Gruden towards Carr. Like, it's not that he hates the guy. It may even be that he likes the guy, but he's not in love with the guy. John Gruden, I believe, feels like he can do better than Derek Carr. And truth be told, you can do better than Derek Carr. He's not an elite quarterback. He may not even be like a top 12, top 15 quarterback. Like, if you do the work and you put together 
all of the quarterbacks in the NFL and you rank them. I'm not sure that Derek Carr comes up, say, in the top 15. But there is a lot to like about Derek Carr, especially in regards to the Washington football team. Derek Carr is going into just his age 30 season. Derek Carr has two seasons left on a contract extension that he signed, and the remaining salary cap hits, very manageable, $22.1 million for 2021, $19.9 million for 2022. Carr has been very durable. His seven NFL seasons have seen him play in and start 110 of a possible 112 regular season games. Carr's two most recent seasons have been his two best seasons. He's had his two best yards per pass attempts of his career and the two best total QBRs of his career. His career interception percentage is just 1.85. That's simply interceptions divided by pass attempts. 1.85 interception percentage. He is actually sixth among qualified passers in NFL history in terms of lowest interception percentage. And Carr, right, played for Jack Del Rio during his three seasons as Raiders head coach. Now, we had that rumor a few weeks back, this guy, Vincent Bonsignor, Raiders insider for the Las Vegas Review-Journal, uh, February 2nd reported that several NFL insiders expected the Raiders to field calls on a potential trade of Carr, and that Washington was likely to be one of the bidders. And the report also mentioned the possibility of that wild three-team trade scenario in which Washington would send two first-round picks to the Raiders for Carr, and the Raiders would then use those two first-round picks as part of a package to the Houston Texans for Deshaun Watson. Now, no way would I give up two first-round picks for Derek Carr. I'm not even totally positive I'd give up a first-round pick for Derek Carr. I think it really would depend on, again, what I keep coming back to, how Washington feels about this quarterback draft class, and also how Washington feels Carr would fit in to what they're doing offensively. But I would be very open to trading for Derek Carr. And I could be convinced that parting with the number 19 overall pick would be worthwhile. I think Carr is good. Uh, I don't think he's great, but I think he's on that like Kirk Cousins tier of he's, you know, a guy who you can win with and who you can make the playoffs with. And he's not necessarily going to carry you or elevate everyone around him to a point of, you know, outstanding production, but he can certainly hold up his end of the bargain and he can certainly be a quarterback on a playoff team. I do very much believe that, you know, Albert Breer of the MMQB uh, earlier this month did say that Washington had inquired on Carr, but that he up until that point had not been made available by the Raiders. And it may be that he's never made available by the Raiders. I mean, so much of the quarterback conversation this offseason is not just about who's unhappy, but who truly is going to be made available. I mean, if I'm the Raiders, I wouldn't be so quick to just part ways with Carr unless I'm certain I can get someone who's better. Russell Wilson is better. And if somehow this does end up deteriorating to where the Seahawks want to trade Wilson and the Raiders make the play to get Wilson, well, then Carr obviously at that point becomes available. And if I'm Washington, I would very much be inquiring about what it would take to get Derek Carr. Now, of course, tied to that is the Marcus Mariota situation, right? Derek Carr's backup with the Raiders. And this was interesting the other day, this past Wednesday, Ian Rappaport of NFL Media reporting that Mariota had generated a lot of interest from teams, but also that his trade market had dried up due to the nature of his contract. And the Mariota contract situation is really kind of unique. So he's got one season left on his contract at a base salary of $10.6 million. But the contract is loaded with incentives to where him as the starter for the entire 2021 season would get him an extra $12 million, according to Rappaport. So if you trade for Mariota and he ends up being your starter and he stays healthy and he's your starter the entire season, you're talking about about $22, $23 million that you're paying the guy. Is he worth that kind of money? Like, even if you think that there may be some untapped talent in Mariota, is he worth 20 plus million dollars? I mean, you're about to cut or part ways with Alex Smith in part, in large part, because he's got a 20 plus million dollar cap hit. Are you that much better off bringing Mariota and paying him 20 plus million dollars for 2021? Now, none of the money left in Mariota's contract is guaranteed. That is true. The thing with Mariota is the potential very much exists for the Raiders to just cut him. 
So like that's one of the real appealing things about him, right? Is that you're, you may well not have to give up anything to get the guy. The Raiders are projected to be more than $18 million above the salary cap. And the Raiders already this offseason have made multiple quarterback moves, albeit small ones. But the Raiders earlier this month announced the re-signing of Nathan Peterman. And the Raiders back in January announced the signing of this guy, Kyle Sloter, to one of those reserve slash future contracts. So, you know, you've got, in theory, three quarterbacks already, you know, if you're part ways with Mariota. You got Carr, you got Peterman, you got Sloter. A lot of people think those moves regarding Peterman and Sloter were done to kind of set the table for parting ways with Mariota. I've said this with Mariota. I'm open to anything. If Washington really feels like it can rehab him here, go ahead and bring him on board. It's not going to cost you a lot in terms of trade compensation, if anything. You know, especially if you could just sign the guy. Like, I guess why not? I mean, it's, you know, you, you can afford the money, even if it's the, ends up being the 20 plus million dollars and he's starting for you. I mean, look, if he starts for you and plays the entire year, he must be doing something well. So it might be worth paying the 20 plus million dollars. And if he doesn't start for you, yeah, it's a $10.6 billion salary, but you have the cap space. So you can do it, uh, if you want. But Mariota to me is not overly exciting. And it's still kind of unclear how much Washington does believe in Mariota. You know, Michael Lombardi, the uh, the former NFL executive who now is a writer for The Athletic, he hosts a podcast. He was on that sports betting network, Vissin, on February 12th. And he said that the Washington football team was in on Marcus Mariota. It's got a lot of attention at the time. Quote, I know there's one team in the NFC East, the Washington football team, that's extremely interested in Mariota. What got less attention is what Lombardi said four days later, February 16th on the Pat McAfee show, that he, Lombardi, wasn't sure if Washington was still interested in Mariota. So we went from the previous Friday, Lombardi saying that Washington was extremely interested in Mariota, to four days later, Lombardi saying, I'm not sure if Washington is still interested in Mariota. And maybe that has everything to do with the contract situation, but it's not like the contract item is new. Like, teams know contract details. They've known for a while that Mariota's contract is loaded with incentives. So we're not quite sure if Washington is a believer in Mariota or not. I think it's interesting. You've heard Washington tied to so many of these guys this offseason, right? Mariota and Carr and Darnold. And I wonder how much of this is smokescreen. I really do. Like Washington just kind of putting stuff out there and just kind of seeing what sticks, seeing what might incite things from other teams. And it may not be that Washington truly likes any of these guys at all. I, you know, I wonder about that because uh, the, the, the Washington football team is coming up in regards to so many of these quarterbacks. And it may well be that Washington is interested in every one of these quarterbacks. But you do kind of wonder, don't you? Like, maybe it's just Washington trying to put out feelers and just trying to throw teams off and play a game of misdirection. And maybe the true play here is something that hasn't come up at all. That's why I do keep going back to the draft. I wonder if any of this is to make teams think that Washington isn't interested in drafting a quarterback when in fact Washington is very interested in drafting a quarterback. The reporting regarding Washington in the draft, no one's talking about it. Nobody's bringing it up. It's almost like this foregone conclusion that everybody has that the third quarterback that Washington wants to bring into its Heineke Allen mix is a veteran, is a Mariota or a Darnold or a Fitzpatrick or a Carr if he's made available. You know, we obviously know Washington did try to trade for Matthew Stafford. So, you know, there is legitimacy to this, right? They did try to trade for Matthew Stafford. But what if they just view it as, yeah, we didn't get Stafford. We don't really like anybody else. But let's make other teams think we're interested in all these other people. When in reality, what we really want to do is trade up and take Trey Lance. You know, you got to wonder about something like that. You tell me what you think. Hit me up on Twitter at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Very nice win for the Capitals on Thursday night. A 5-2 victory over the Pittsburgh Penguins at Capital One Arena. The Caps improved to 10-5-4 on the year. And the win moves the Caps into a tie with the Boston Bruins atop the East Division at 24 points. Bruins lost at the New York Islanders 7-2. So the Washington Capitals, despite having gone without so many key players for so long, due to COVID-19 protocols, right? Alex Ovechkin, Dmitry Orlov, Evgeny Kuznetsov, Ilya Samsonov. The four Russians were out for a good chunk of time. You've dealt with a good deal of injury so far this year. A lot, lot of different people missing time at various points, whether it's Justin Schultz, Lars Eller, etc. You had TJ Oshie as your second line center for a good bit of time this year. That Capitals team 
is tied with the mighty Bruins atop the East Division as we speak on this Friday at 24 points. Now look, there is a feeling of some that the Caps aren't as good as their record suggests. They're 10-5-4, and and yet they have a goal differential of even. Caps have 65 goals for, 65 goals against, as they say in hockey so far this year. Bruins, for comparison's sake, same number of points as the Caps at 24, and yet the Bruins have a plus 10 goal differential. So, you know, you got to wonder about stuff like this. But look, at the end of the day, it don't matter how you get there, just that you get there. And the Caps are tied atop their division, despite a lot of reason not to be in that position so far this year, and we're 19 games into the season. The win last night was an odd game. Six of the seven goals were scored in the third period, including two empty net goals for the Caps. There was a lot to like, though, about this performance for the Caps. And I'm going to start with the goaltender, Vitek Vanacek, who again was in net for the Caps. Vitek Vanacek, this guy's tongue has got to be hanging near his knees at this point. He's now started 15 of the last 16 games for the Caps, and he was good again last night. He stopped 26 of 28 shots. It's so funny. We go into the season, it's Ilya Samsonov. He's the number one goaltender. And then Samsonov gets sidelined by the COVID-19 protocols. He's been cleared from those uh, for a while here. He's been back with the team. He only made two starts for Hershey on a rehab assignment. But Vanacek has continued to be the number one guy. And Vanacek is now the number one guy. And they may not say it, but don't go by what they say or don't say. Go by the actions. Vanacek is starting game in and game out again. 15 of the last 16 games, Vitek Vanacek has been the cap starting goaltender. He stops 26 of 28 shots on Thursday night, including 10 of the 11 high danger shots that he faced per natural stat trick. Vitek Vanacek now, over his last five games, has stopped 128 of 138 shots. That's a 928 save percentage for old Vitek over his last five games. He's had some boo-boos this year. You know, he's, he's had some bad games. But by and large, especially with how much he's been leaned upon, he's done a really nice job. This is a guy who was in Hershey forever. You know, he was down in the AHL forever. And it never felt like Vitek Vanacek was considered like a number one goaltending prospect for the Caps. Ilya Samsonov has been the chosen one. You know, for years, it was Samsonov who was referred to as the goaltender of the future, not Vanacek. It was Samsonov, like we just said, who was christened as the number one goaltender going into the season. I mean, you you knew that Vanacek would have to play a lot because of the condensed schedule, but it still was, it was Samsonov who was number one, Vanacek who was number two. And now it's like not even a conversation. Vanacek is the guy and he's doing a really good job with it. So I give him a lot of credit. Caps last night did commit four more minors, but they went four of four on the penalty kill. And all four of those kills were key kills. The four kills came over the first two periods with the Caps nursing a one nothing lead. So a really good job on the penalty kill. Obviously, Vanacek is a big part of that. Another interesting thing about this win over Pittsburgh, Peter Laviolette shuffled his lines again. This is almost becoming like a joke. With how often Laviolette is shuffling his lines. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. I mean, some coaches change their lines all the time. Other coaches just kind of let things stick. I do think there's something to be said for, you know, letting guys develop a chemistry together and just kind of seeing how things go, you know, and, and you set it and you forget it for at least a little while. Every game now, Laviolette is moving this guy up two lines and that guy down two lines. For Thursday night, he moved Evgeny Kuznetsov and Connor Sheary from the second line to the top line where they joined Alex Ovechkin, moved Nicholas Backstrom from the third line to the second line, and Tom Wilson from the top line to the second line, joining Jacob Vrana, and moved Lars Eller from the top line to the third line, where he joined TJ Oshie and Richard Ponick. Now, the line shuffling for the previous game that lost to Pittsburgh on Tuesday night did not work out so well. That was not a good performance by the Caps in that game. Last night, different story. Caps dominated the puck possession battle. Caps, per natural stat trick, 55 five-on-five shot attempts, to the Penguins 37. And while we're talking about the Caps offense on Thursday night, how about the goal by Oshie? That was some kind of goal. That might actually be the goal of the season so far in terms of, you know, impressive nature of the goal or degree of difficulty regarding the goal. It was an even strength goal, 318 into the third period. And it was a thing of beauty. Oshie, while streaking into the Caps offensive zone, gets the puck from Eller And then while driving with the puck in the slot and while blanketed by a Penguins defenseman, Mike Matheson, and while falling down face forward, somehow gets off a one-handed shot to beat the goaltender. 
Tristan Jari. I mean, think about that again. You're streaking in the offensive zone. You're covered very tightly by the defenseman, Mike Matheson. You're falling down. You get off a one-handed shot and you end up beating Jari for the goal. It was spectacular what Oshie did right there. You know, Oshie was in a goalless drought for a while. He got nine consecutive games without a goal. Here we are now. He had two power play goals in the primary assist on an Alex Ovechkin third period power play goal in that great 4-3 come from behind win over the New Jersey Devils at Capital One Arena on Sunday afternoon. And then on Thursday night, I think the goal of the season with what he did on that goal in the third period. Oshie, by the way, also had an assist last night, primary assist on a Lars Eller third period empty net goal. Here was something else to like too about Thursday night. The Caps got off to a good start. Bad starts have really played the Caps here recently. Not on Thursday night was that the case. The Caps won the first period 1-0. The Caps in that first period 21 5-on-5 shot attempts per natural stat trick to the Penguins 15. And that first period goal for the Caps, it was a Nicholas Backstrom even strength goal 11-20 into the first. Great pass by the defenseman Nick Jensen from the right circle to an open Backstrom in the slot on a give and go. Backstrom also had an assist last night, secondary assist on that Eller third period empty net goal. And how about the season that Backstrom is putting together? He is by far the number one player on the Caps in terms of points this season. 24 points, nine goals, 15 assists. He's actually seventh in the NHL as of Friday morning here in terms of points. 24 points for Backstrom so far this year. He's done a really nice job. Caps also got another power play goal on Thursday night. One for three on the power play. Caps third in the NHL in power play efficiency at 32%. Tom Wilson had the goal. 12.40 into the third to break a two-all tie. Uh, Very nice job by Wilson. He was in the low slot, deposited the puck off a nice pass from John Carlson uh, from the left circle. And the thing about this goal that really stood out is that the closest penguin to Wilson on the goal was the defenseman Chris Letang, who had no stick. He was stickless off it having shattered, and he was yet uh, trying to get all up in it there uh, in the muck there right in front of his goaltender, Tristan Jari, and uh, Wilson ended up making pay. It, you know, there's only so much you can do without a stick uh, when, when you're buried there deep in the slot as Latang was, and Wilson comes through with that power play goal. But the Caps' power play has been outstanding so far. A nit to pick, though, would be that you gave up a shorty last night. Caps gave up a shorthanded goal to Brandon Tanev, 422 into the third for a goal that cut the Caps lead to 2-1. Yeah, Caps were up 2-0, ended up giving back-to-back Penguins goals for the game to get tied at two. But that was a rough spot, and Alex Ovechkin was guilty of the boo-boo there. Offensive zone pass by Ovi up the left boards toward the blue line to nobody. I, I don't know if he thought something was there that wasn't or what the case was, but Ovi passed the puck to nobody up the boards toward the blue line. Penguins get the two-on-two breakaway. Tanev ends up abusing John Carlson in the Caps defensive zone and the Penguins got within one obviously knotted the game up but the Caps end up coming through with the win tied with the Bruins atop the East Division you got two games for the Caps this weekend both games at New Jersey and both games are matinee games which has been kind of a bugaboo for the Caps so far this year Caps are one three and two in afternoon games so far this season but the latest afternoon game was, in fact, a Capitals victory. That aforementioned 4-3 win over the Devils at Capital One Arena last Sunday afternoon. So you're at the Devils Saturday afternoon at 1, then back at the Devils Sunday afternoon at 3. And oh, by the way, next week for the Caps, two huge games at the Bruins. Caps are at Boston Wednesday night, and then again on Friday night. So a good job by the Capitals on Thursday night and a good job by the Wizards on Thursday night. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, that team, our team, our lovable, huggable Washington Wizards, a 112-110 win at the Denver Nuggets to conclude a 3-1 and trip out west that ends up including wins at Portland, the Lakers, and the Nuggets. This is one of the best trips out west for the Wizards that I can ever remember. You end up winning at three really good teams in Portland, the Lakers, and Denver. You go three and one out west. I know that loss at the Clippers on Wednesday night was disappointing. We talked about that on Thursday's pod. But if you Google up your Western Conference standings right now, the Lakers are third in the west. Portland is fifth in the west. And the Nuggets are eighth in the West. You beat three teams. You won at three teams that, as things stand, 
are slated to make the postseason in what is by miles the best conference in the NBA. That's a great job by the Wizards going three and one on this trip out West. And it wasn't always easy. You know, you had to overcome a 17-point third quarter deficit. You blew an 8-point fourth quarter lead in that overtime win at the Lakers on Monday night. You had to overcome a 14-point second quarter deficit in the win at Portland last Saturday night, a game in which, remember, the Wizards gave up 43 first quarter points to the Blazers and 37 third quarter points to the Blazers. But the Wizards won that game. And the Wizards now, they are 12 and 18 overall, 9 and 6 since the 3 and 12 start. And how about this for our Wiz? 6 and 1 in games decided by three or fewer points this season. If the game is close. It means you're close. Yes, thank you, Bruce Allen. If the game is close, the Wizards come through 6 and 1 in games decided by three or fewer points so far this season. It means you're close. Exactly, Bruce. Thank you very much. Wizards are 12 and 18, like I said. And look at your Eastern Conference standings. The Wizards, they are two and a half games behind teams five through eight in the East. Forget about two and a half games out of eighth in the East. The Wizards are two and a half games behind teams five through eight in the Eastern Conference. It's incredible when you look at this. The same Wizards team that was three and 12 is now two and a half games out of the five spot in the East, Toronto, New York, Chicago, and Charlotte. Those are teams five through eight in the East. The Wizards are within two and a half games of each of those teams. Heck, the Wizards are three games behind Indiana for fourth in the Eastern Conference. The East sucks. I cannot state that more clearly. Just three teams in the entire Eastern Conference are above 500. That's it. Three winning teams in the East, Philadelphia, Brooklyn, and Milwaukee. For comparison's sake, eight teams in the West or above 500. I have said this forever. I will continue to say this. It is a joke that the NBA doesn't just do away with these dopey conferences and just have open seating for the playoffs. The West has been so much better than the East for about 20 years now. It's not changing. You know, people say, well, it's cyclical. No, it's not. This cycle has been going on for two decades. And look at the standings for this season. Three teams in the East have winning records. That's it. Sixers, Nets, and Bucks. And the Wizards are benefiting from this. They are in the mix in the Eastern Conference. Now, look, we got to be honest about things here. The Wizards are very lucky to win this game at the Nuggets. And if you watch the game, or at the very least, you watch the end of the game, you know of what I speak. Wizards are nursing a two-point lead at 112-110 with less than 10 seconds left in the fourth quarter. Haul Neto misses a driving finger roll layup. Wiz are unable to tip the ball in or get the rebound. Nikola Jokic gets the rebound. Nuggets get a fast break that results in not one, not two, but three Nuggets being wide open off to the right and zero defenders in the paint. Now remember, Wizards are up by just two, 112-110. Three Nuggets wide open off to the right. No Wizards are in the paint. You've got such an easy path to a game-tying bucket. And yet, all three of those wide-open Nuggets inexplicably set up at the three-point line. It was unbelievable. Facundo Campazzo ends up missing a three as time expires, and the Wizards come away with the win. It was unreal. I don't know what the Nuggets were thinking. I don't know if they didn't know what the score was. I don't know if they forgot that you're allowed to score buckets inside the paint. Like, I don't know what happened. But a total brain cramp by multiple Nuggets in that sequence. And the Wizards end up escaping with a two-point win. The Wizards did play some defense in the game. That is true. That is true. So it's not like the only reason they won was luck. Game was tied at 88 entering the fourth quarter. The Wizards won the fourth quarter 24-22. They, in that fourth quarter, held the Nuggets to 1-10 on threes. So that's a good defensive job in the clutch. And you take a wider view of things. Look, the Wizards did get scorched once again by Nikola Jokic and Jamal Murray. Jokic and Murray got theirs. They combined 9-15 on threes, combined for 58 points, 17 rebounds, 13 assists, versus six turnovers and four blocks. But the rest of the Nuggets, a mere six of 23 on threes and total just 52 points. So Jokic and Murray did what they can do, but the rest of the Nuggets struggled. The Wizards defense during this nine and six stretch since the three and 12 start, it's not like the defense has been outstanding. It's just been passable. You know, it's been better. 
Like it's gone from wretched to like mediocre. And mediocre can be good enough. Like middle of the pack kind of defense can be good enough. And that's kind of what you had in this win at the Nuggets on Thursday night. It was another game in which the Wizards struggled to make the three. Just eight of 26 on threes, but 33 of 60 on twos. The Wizards have been good on their twos, and the Wizards just 11 turnovers for the game, and five of the turnovers were by Russell Westbrook. So the rest of the Wiz, a total of just six turnovers the entire game. Another good game for Bradley Beal, two of five on threes, eight of 14 on twos, 11 of 11 on free throws. Did a great job of getting to the line. He finished with 33 points, four assists, just two turnovers and four rebounds. Beal was so good in that fourth quarter, pumping in nine points. If I ask the question, who was the Wizards' best point guard in the game at the Nuggets? The answer is not Westbrook. The answer is the Brazilian, Raul Neto. What a game for Neto off the bench. So this is a guy who the Wizards signed in the offseason. He was supposed to be their third point guard behind Westbrook and Ish Smith. And Neto's gotten a lot of minutes so far this year. And he was never better this season than he was last night. 15 points on 5 of 10 shooting, 4 assists no turnovers, and five steals in 28 minutes, 14 seconds as a reserve. And he was outstanding in the fourth quarter. Seven points in the fourth for Neto. Had a huge defensive stop on Jamal Murray in the final minute of the game. Scott Brooks, after the game, was raving about the defense of Neto. Also about the work of another reserve, the man referred to as Rolo, uh, Robin Lopez. Another good game for him off the bench on Thursday night. Ten points, five of seven shooting at the game's best plus minus rating of uh, plus 13, played for 25 minutes off the bench. Lopez has been getting some run here lately. He's actually been doing a pretty good job with it. Neto was terrific last night. Uh, Rui Hachimura was good again last night. You know, again, another solid game for Rui. 20 points, 9 to 16 shooting, and 5 rebounds. And I mentioned Westbrook. Look, it was not a great game for Westbrook. He had the 5 turnovers. He went just 6 of 17 from the field. But he did have another triple-double. This is now, I mean, it really is something. 9 triple-doubles in 23 games for Westbrook with the Wizards. He had 16 points, 10 assists, and 10 rebounds to go with three steals. The Wizards' all-time leader in career regular season triple-doubles is Daryl Walker with 15. Westbrook in just 23 games has nine triple-doubles. He's second on the Wizards' all-time list in triple-doubles already in just 23 games. And I'll say this about Westbrook. You know, we know he's a great rebounding guard. He, he might be, and I don't think this is hyperbole, he might be the best rebounding point guard in NBA history. Like, I really think there is a case for that. But there was one rebound he had in particular that was just sensational. Westbrook jumping high near the right block for a shot that caromed off the back of the rim and getting the rebound despite being in the vicinity of three nuggets, including Nikola Jokic. I mean, just a, an outstanding job by Westbrook to get that board. It ignited a sequence that resulted in a Robin Lopez jump hook in the paint. But w- just an, uh, just a really great offensive rebound by Westbrook right there. And I thought it was like a really nice snapshot into just how good of a rebounding point guard Russell Westbrook is. Uh, he is tremendous uh, in that way. So, you know, look, the turnovers, yes. The inefficient shooting last night, yes, but another triple-double. And, you know, there are little things like that that really stand out when you watch Westbrook. The the guy is just tremendous when it comes to crashing the boards. There's another thing, too, to make mention of when it comes to this win for the Wizards. It happened despite Davies Bertans. And Bertans, look, he's not had a very good year so far, but he is now dealing with right knee soreness. So what has been a disastrous year for him, now it feels like he's getting even worse. Remember, he early in the year talked about how his conditioning was only at 60 to 70%. He has struggled to do the thing this season that he's paid to do. You know, $80 million contract in the offseason. He's shooting just 37.2% on threes. He was at 42.4% on threes last regular season. I don't know to what extent this right knee has been a reason for the lackluster three-point shooting. I mean, I don't think it's the only reason. I don't think you can just excuse the bad shooting to the knee. But if this is something he has been dealing with, he's got to get that right. He's got to get right. The the Wizards need him to be the three-point weapon that he was last year. He was outstanding last year. He was so good last year. And he hasn't been anything close to that so far this season. But when he's on, he can change the complexion of a game. You know, it's funny we're talking about the Wizards having won at the Nuggets last night. Remember what happened in the Wizards' previous game against the Denver Nuggets not that long ago. That 130-128 win over Denver 
at Capital One Arena on February 17th. Another one of these nutso Wizards games. They overcame a 20-point first quarter deficit. Bertans in that game was out of his mind. 9 of 11 on threes. He finished with 35 points off the bench. That's how white-hot Bertans can be. He can be so valuable and so good. It's why I advocated for the Wizards to give him whatever it took to re-sign him this past offseason. He so far has not come close to living up to that contract. I hope he gets his right knee right, and I hope he comes back and he can be the version of himself that we all really fell in love with uh, as Wizards fans last season. Wiz have two games this weekend, home to Minnesota, Saturday night at 7, at Boston, Sunday night at 7. It is remarkable what we are seeing from this Wizards team, a team that looks so bad for so much of the early part of this season, now has been anything but 9-6 and six since the 3-12 and 12 start, 12-18 and 18 overall, and do not forget a mere two and a half games out of the five through eight spots in the lowly Eastern Conference. The damn Washington Wizards. All right, so back-to-back games for the Capitals this weekend, back-to-back games for the Wizards this weekend. It's a big weekend to college hoops as the regular season winds down. Maryland is home to Michigan State Sunday afternoon at 2. Georgetown is at DePaul Saturday at noon. And number 16, Virginia Tech, home to Wake Forest Saturday afternoon at four. We're going to be talking Hokies and also Virginia Cavaliers on this podcast as the month of March gets going. I know I've gotten some requests from you guys. Hey, Galt, are you going to talk about the Hokies and the Who's? Yes, yes, I will be uh, as we get into the month of March. Also, this upcoming weekend, spring training games begin. The Nationals, their Grapefruit League opener against the St. Louis Cardinals Sunday afternoon at 105. Also, the Orioles, they face the Pittsburgh Pirates Sunday afternoon at 105. I've actually gotten a lot of requests to talk O's, so we will be talking O's uh, on this podcast in the coming months here. But speaking of the Nats, I, I did want to make mention of this before we call it a show. Did you see what our old pal Bryce Harper had to say on Thursday? Your Philadelphia Phillies right fielder saying via virtual press conference that he feels he can speak more freely and honestly in Philadelphia. Quote, I love playing in Philadelphia. I feel like I can be Bryce. They have let me be me, end quote. He said that the Phillies have never asked him to dial it down. Now, he didn't take a direct shot at the Nats, and I don't even know to what extent he was trying to take a shot at the Nats, but the clear implication was the Phillies are letting me be me. My previous team, the Nats, did not let me be me. I always felt like the stuff about Bryce Harper and, you know, he was a bad guy or he did things that you shouldn't do. Like, I always thought that that stuff was so overblown. You know, when people would try to criticize him for wearing too much eye black or, you know, you remember they had the famous thing, actually, ironically enough, against the Philadelphia Phillies with Cole Hamels and, you know, people trying to teach Bryce a lesson for supposedly disrespecting the game. You know, obviously, we had the famous thing with Jonathan Papelbon trying to strangle Bryce in the dugout, the D.C. Strangler. But I always felt a lot of the attitude stuff with Bryce Harper was overblown. He may not have been a saint, but I, I thought people took that stuff and ran with it way too much. But here kind of is, is what I want to use these Bryce Harper comments on Thursday as a springboard into. It really is something to me how Bryce Harper doesn't even come up anymore when people talk about the great young stars in baseball. Like, he just, he doesn't come up, okay? He got the big contract from the Phillies a couple of off-seasons ago, although it wasn't nearly the contract that he wanted. The contract very quickly got blown out of the water by the Mike Trout contract extension with the Los Angeles Angels. It's not that Harper has been bad with the Phillies. He really hasn't been. You know, Bryce Harper led the majors in walks in 2020 with 49. He had a 157 OPS plus in 2020. He had 35 homers for the Phillies in his first season with them in 2019. Of course, it was in 2019, though, that the Nationals won the World Series in their first season without Bryce Harper. And so it's kind of been like that. Like, he's done well with the Phillies, but the team as a whole has not done well. The Nationals won a World Series, and Bryce Harper has been lapped at this point multiple times by Trout, and he doesn't even come up anymore when people sing the praises of baseball's young stars. Juan Soto comes up a lot more than Bryce Harper. Fernando Tatis especially recently comes up a lot more than Bryce Harper. Mookie Betts has surpassed Bryce Harper. You know, even someone like a Cody Bellinger has surpassed Bryce Harper. Freddie Freeman, I think, is getting more run and more attention, and deservedly so, than Bryce Harper. And it just really is remarkable. Like, Bryce Harper at this point 
he kind of is what he is. He's going into his age 28 season. He's been in the majors since 2012. Like, he's not changing. This is what he is as a player. And he is a good player. It's not like he's a bad player. It's not like he's been some colossal bust for the Phillies over the first two seasons of that contract. But he's not Trout. He's not close to Trout. He's not a top 10 player in baseball. And he's someone who I think is going to put up numbers. But he's not someone who you're going to talk about as legitimately being in contention as the man who is the best player in the sport. Now, I know like that's a high bar. Like, okay, you're not the best player in the sport. Okay, you can still be really good. You know, you can be a Hall of Famer and not be the best player in your sport at, at any one particular moment. That That's true and that's fine. But he is just not even like talked about that much, I feel like, you know? He's kind of become obsolete. Now, if the Phillies are good in 2021, that can change. But man, it just feels like you don't hear about old Brycey anymore. You just don't. Uh, and so I guess maybe he's got to say some of these things to stay relevant. I'm not sure. Know this too, when it comes to Soto versus Harper, Juan Soto is what Bryce Harper wasn't, and that is consistently great offensively. Juan Soto over his three major league seasons has an OPS plus of 151. OPS plus is league and park adjusted OPS. 100 is average. Anything above 100 is good. Below 100 is below average. Juan Soto's career OPS plus is 151. He literally has been 51% better than an average hitter in the National League. Bryce Harper's career OPS plus is 138. That's good. That's really good. But it's not Soto. Like Soto is clearly been better than Bryce Harper. Soto clearly has been the force, the consistent offensive force that Bryce never was. And the truth about Bryce is this, his all-world 2015 season, and it was an all-world season, National League MVP, spectacular numbers across the board. You know, speaking of OPS Plus, Harper's OPS Plus in 2015, 198, which is sensational. He's never come close to duplicating that season since. And there was a thinking that year, and I know I thought it of, okay, now Bryce has arrived. This is the Bryce Harper we're going to see moving forward. And it really hasn't been. Again, he's been good, but he's not been spectacular good. And I don't think he's ever getting back to that 2015 level again. And I'm not sure he gets close to that 2015 level again. You tell me what you think at Al Galdi on Twitter. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. All right, that will do it for you and for me for now. Week one of the Al Galdi podcast is in the books. Cannot thank you guys enough for the support that you've shown subscribing, rating, reviewing. It's meant so much. That number 13 ranking on Apple Podcasts in the U.S. sports category I talked about the other day. I still can't get over that. So thank you, thank you, thank you for all the support that you've shown. Have a great weekend. We'll talk again on Monday. It means you're close.